The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. So that was 2022. We made it. What a year. And hands up those who predicted Europe's first major land war since 1945, the death of Queen Elizabeth and the shortest prime ministership and the hottest day in UK history. No, I didn't think so. So what chance do we have for preparing ourselves for 2023? What's coming? Alien invasion? Nuclear Armageddon? Four more Prime Ministers? Or is it just a mugs game to try and see into the next 12 months? Well, we are up for the challenge. If you want some expert guidance, we've brought our crystal ball. The why? Curve. Well, I'll tell you what, whatever happened, it's got to be a better year than this year has been next year, hasn't it? Well, better in what sense? I mean, it's been great for news, hasn't it? <laughs> for our game, perhaps. I mean, we haven't been able to get off in some ways, you know, in terms of the vast amounts of things to report. But no, I mean, I think most people would say that 2022 has not been fun. And 2021 wasn't that great either, and 2020 uh, wasn't. So yeah. the 20s basically... 2019, it's, anyway. It's not been the roaring 20s, it has hasn't, it? It has It's yet. been the destroying 20s. So could it get worse this year? That, I mean, I mean, that is the could, danger. I it mean, could the, economically, certainly things are that the signs are not good. Yeah. The um, war could get worse. The war could get worse. The energy crisis could get worse. The environment could get worse. COVID hasn't finished with us yet. God, no. this is so depressing but, for the end of the year. But, but, uh, here we are. We were full of Christmas spirit uh, yeah, sort of no. like a day or two ago. Yeah. Now we can look forward to, to interesting new innovations, we, you know, new medical breakthroughs, uh, perhaps some more prime ministers. I mean, that could be interesting and useful in and of itself. Or, or perhaps... Perhaps, you know, a moment where some of the crises which we've been living through resolve themselves. That's yeah. the other thought. Yeah, absolutely. So there might be good news in amongst all of that. And the interesting thing is, I think, is just how much we're changing as a as a species. I mean, you know, we're not changing, uh, you know, how we look, but we are changing how we think. Some of us are changing how we look. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you'll lose weight next year as well. You know? <laughs> come on, come on. Let's be realistic. Or maybe here. I'll just put it all back on again. Let's but I be mean, realistic. the way we mm. think about things, you mm. know, I think COVID COVID had a big impact on us. Mm. Uh, we all cocooned ourselves perhaps a little bit yeah. more. We became a little bit more insular. Are we yeah. going to open up again or are we going to be more thought-provoking? Are we going to just think about things that little bit more? From well, on? The, thing, the thing is we don't know any of this because mm. the, the, that's the whole point about this. It is very hard to see. No one could have predicted most of those things last mm. year or the year before. Who predicted COVID coming down the line? People thought there might be a pandemic at some point. So there's yeah. lots of things where you just do not have a clue as to what. Well, there's two, isn't there? There's two speeds, aren't there's trends and some mm. of those it's obvious what's going to happen next if you just extrapolate where we've been heading you can yeah, have yeah. a have a pretty good guess of where that's going to yeah, go yeah. but events dear boy events, events yes. there they are those that, that, uh, exogenous shocks as economists it's like to call the black them. swans the black swans yeah we're going to have another one Flux of those of god swans. i hope not mm. so there are some funny predictions about which i'll come to actually okay uh, from uh, from people who've got some crazy ideas about what but happened we will but you know crazy speaking, ideas sometimes yeah. are, uh, well, actually we turn out to be true but there are people who get paid to look into the future well, let's and see what's talk going. to one of those people then, shall we? We could, couldn't we? Well, let's talk to Martin Raymond. He's co-founder of the Future Laboratory, which is a futures consultancy, offices in London and Melbourne. They've been working with a 1,000 businesses in over 50 countries. Now, what does he think is going to happen in 2023? So, so Martin, I mean, uh, I know that you do this professionally and you uh, you uh, you advise businesses as well on, on what's going to happen. But there must be, you must be surprised. There must be stuff that's happened over the last few years, particularly the last few years. Well, particularly where, the last 12 months. I should think exactly where you thought uh, didn't see that coming. So are there, uh, are there some of those things, I mean, you don't know what they are next year. But do you think that the same is going to happen again? Are you looking and thinking, my goodness, like we all are, what could happen in 2023, given what we've been through over the last few years? 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the great thing about the future is that the only thing that is certain, I think, is uncertainty. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you think about COVID, um, very few people predicted COVID, despite the fact that if you look at previous pandemics, there was quite a lot of evidence pointing to, uh, you know, a, a, a pandemic that would occur at some point over the next decade. This is like looking at, at 2010. So pretty much we're looking at, at kind of issues relating to science, issues relating to safety, issues relating to, you know, how we are managing um, issues of, of, of kind of bioethics. So probably anybody who was thinking about it could have guessed that something terrible was going to happen. And probably that's the best way to look at the future. So, so you kind of say you, you, you can spot a trend. You can say this almost certainly will happen. You just don't know when. Is that, that really? And, and the size of it. Yeah, there are sort of, I, I would say there are lifestyle trends which are easier to predict. So, for example, uh, if you take the subject of organic food, I remember when we looked at organic food um, probably about 20 years ago, there was a tiny percentage of what we would call innovators or early adopters who were talking about organic farming or organic consumption or the relevance of, for example, organic in terms of health. So they were a tiny, probably about 2%. But when you looked at the statistics relating to it, um, each year they were increasing. Also, what was increasing were the conversations about organic. And uh, again, I think the products that were beginning to relate to organic food sources or organic alcohol or whatever. So what you're doing there is really... I guess looking at evidence and then forward projecting that evidence and you would you kind of test that with for example experts so you're talking to your experts about organic uh, you're having a chat or you're looking on social media to see what the conversations are surrounding organic and then you're also looking at testing what i call the the that early adopter group within any population so if you think about that in terms of size it's about 13 percent. so any cohort you look at will have about 13% or so of people who were adopting trends at a particular speed uh, with a particular energy. But more interestingly, about that group compared to other groups, they talk about the trends. Mm, so right. they're not just, uh, I think, borrowing into them or buying into them. They're also having conversations with other people. So really, as a business, that's where we focus our, our firepower and our effort and energy. But you, the disruptors, about 2%, and then the 13% were taking that into the mainstream. So just on, on the point of organic, suddenly that was creeping up and up and up. And I remember having a conversation with the then... Um, CEO of Marks and Spencer and saying, look, in food, this will be quite a major lifestyle trend. And they were going, well, look, it, it can't work because it doesn't conform to value. People aren't asking for it. And, and worse still, uh, to bring this to the market now when we're talking about, you know, cheap, essential, uh, you know, buying internationally, buying globally, because this is a point when everything was, was kind of purchased globally. It's just not going to wash with our core demographics. So really, that's the point as a forecaster. You're having to present the evidence. I always think it's a bit like being in a, in a courtroom <laughs> and you're the, the person for the prosecution. You have to demonstrate clearly and, and evidentially that these things will come to pass so and that the evidence is pointing 
in that direction. Well, that's a lifestyle trend. Yeah. That's not a kind of a global, uh, you know, security or safety or climate trend. But so, it's slightly. It's different. almost like forensics, isn't it? Using all of that evidence. By the way, on mm. on uh, on on yeah, looking at uh, organic food. I mean, my wife is a big proponent of it, and I'm one of those people who looks and goes, "This is twice the price." <laughs> and to never and so you know, so we, if I go shopping, I'll always go, "Ah, oh, yeah, sorry, organic cabbage." No, I didn't have any of that, so I had to get this. But, but nonetheless, it is out there, and it is you know obviously something and perhaps not at this particular moment maybe people won't be thinking of it but 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 Marty, let me, let, let's put you then on the stand you know you talked about being in the court so uh, the, the prosecution case is uh, that 2023 is going to be pretty awful uh, in terms of the economics in terms of the geopolitics uh, even in terms of perhaps medical issues what do you think i mean if, as you look ahead are you able to give any give the court any kind of reassurance uh, yes, I'm going to say that advisedly and, and carefully, because I think, um, you know, if you look historically during times of greatest disruption, that was usually the periods where we saw the greatest moments of innovation. So if you think about, uh, you know, the 20s, or I think about the 60s, I think about the 80s and even the 90s, when you were looking at recessions and rising inflation or stagflation and and issues about kind of how much we had in our pockets, there was almost a counterpart to people looking at quite big shifts in, uh, you know, cultural change, in computing, in uh, biotech, in in AI, for example, the current thing. So I do think if you look at at the current cycle we're in, while there's a, a big issue about uh, you know, cost of living, crisis, climate, uh, global security, energy, etc. There is also uh, a more interesting push in terms of scientific research to, well, let's refine how AI could work. Let's look at how biotech and synthetic can be brought back into the cultural debate. You know, let's look at an example of the great issues and debates of the day. When I remove all of the, the things about geopolitics, the big concern is longevity, for example, um, Alzheimer's, big debates about that. But we're beginning to see in different countries and in different research institutions, a cycle of change and of shift and of discovery that I think over the next decade will bring out and this is a phrase that I think it's a, a guy called um, Mark Mills used in his book. He talks about the roaring 20s of technological innovation. So I'm going to sit that as a piece of evidence against the doom and gloom, which I think will happen. But the doom and gloom has to be understood in the context of short term, you know, where we are faced with terrible consequences if we don't take action mm. beneath and behind and around, we are also seeing massive scientific advances. And if one can keep slightly ahead of the other, I think that's where the long game can be potentially won. But, so, right. but, he, but that science has to solve the problems that we are all facing, doesn't it? So yes, so, so, so solving longevity might be great, but if we're not having a terrific life, then maybe we, we actually don't want that. <laughs> we don't want that. I agree. <laughs> you know, but, as a forecaster, you're always faced with the what I call the, the, the uh, you know the team in marketing or buying or or you know in in supply change for like, this is great but we want to know about the near now mm. uh not the you know the next long term and i think that's always the tension that you're having to look at so for next year for example uh you know you will see all in terms of food the reactivation of you know essentials you know how we define what it is we put into our shopping basket uh we will be looking at 
for example, um, how people, uh, you know, energy bill savings. Because one of the things I think about, everybody has left their offices, you know, that kind of the, the, the great resignation, and everybody is now working from home. But I have got a group of people I'm speaking to who are in their 20s. It's their kind of first, potentially second jobs, who are planning, particularly if they live in cities, to return to the office. And the reason they're doing that is simply to do with the cost of living and heating their flats and apartments and the bedsits and rooms they live in. So in that sense, mm. we kind of see these weird, unpredicted shifts. They're the unintended consequences of something else beginning to happen in the world around us. So they're the bits I start looking for. You know, what are the things that we are expecting? Is it cheap groceries? And when I put that phrase to a lot of the, the kind of Waitrose and M&S and, and uh, Sainsbury's people, they go, mm, we're not sure about that. They still have some money. You know, it's been cut back, but there's still some money there. On the other hand, if it's essential, they kind of like the sound of that. So as forecasted, we're going, so what does essential look like to somebody who's got some money versus essential in terms of definition to people who have no money? So that's the kind of, of, of I guess... So an adaptation to, to the austerity state, in effect, you're saying this will have consequences in terms of, of, of the way shops provide us with things, but also in terms of the workplace, that people will go back to the workplace much more and will buy cheap things, essentially. It's Yes, it's also, it's, it's how you're looking at it, because I remember the first time... Um, you know, retailers were looking at this would be in 2007, eight, you know, when you were looking at at cheap products, you realize that the consumer, we did a lot of research then, we, we defined a group called the Just Nots, which I think at the time the government borrowed and started using to describe people who are just not able to afford X or just not able to afford Y. And when we spoke to them, what was interesting, while they had a sense of what essentials were like in terms of food, you know, trying to buy something that was a bit better, a bit healthier, but not paying too much for it, in their houses, when we were looking around and chatting to them, they saw things like, for example, a flat screen TV wasn't essential. And in fact, for a lot of them, it was a poverty line marker. You know, access to the Internet was essential. It was a poverty line marker. Uh, quite a lot of people we were talking to had smartphones in front of them. The majority, in fact, had Apple smartphones in front of them. So what we also understood there is that when we're looking at what we define as essential, mm. what is it the consumer is thinking about? And that's, I think, the bit about the future is, is that while things move forward and we use those terms cheap it's it's relative to how people view it and i think having got to those levels i'm not sure people will retreat from them in terms of their lack of money i think they'll start thinking about other areas to save money to fuel those essentials that used to be regarded as luxuries or something that we we we, we bought when we had a bit of spare so cash over and above living cash so a bit spoiled is what you're saying isn't it and you know so when we say uh, oh well, actually, we're, we're hard done by we're not really that hard done by but if we go through a, a year or several years where we're thinking it's all about savings i mean that's not a particularly great outlook is it if our, our reason for being is to actually spend less and survive uh, even though surviving might be with a flat screen tv it also and a means there's, there's less money going into the economy if we're not buying big stuff and uh, but um, i was my, my my question was going to be though before we get onto the economy is just what what does that mean for attitudes if we are all saying oh you know if if, we're, if it's a doom and gloom scenario even though things might not be that bad what does that mean to to society as a whole i mean do, are we losing our 
positive attitude? Are we uh, are we becoming more insular, for example, as people? Are we going to cocoon ourselves at home more? Uh, you know, are we going to be more cautious? What how how are attitudes going to shift next think, year? Do you think? Really, I think we're going out more. So as a consequence of COVID, but also as a consequence of the season itself, and the fact that a lot of us are not back in offices full time, and that's provi- allowing us to perhaps be a bit naughtier on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday night rather than just on a Thursday and a Friday. So you're seeing more people out and you're seeing more people engaged in things that are about experience. So I look at kind of theatre levels, I look at kind of club nights, I look at kind of bar levels, music nights, all of these things are are um, on the up and up. So despite the fact that there is a recession, despite the fact that there's inflation, despite the fact that our household budgets are cut, we are spending more. And I think what's interesting is that will continue, I think, through to March, April of next year. So you're going to see a, a kind of um, a, a push in the spend and heads down, not really looking at the economic situation because people, I feel, have been so starved of all of these things that they really don't want to hear the word austerity. So pushing into next year, you're going to see people still spending. Right. I think. Are we saying in May we run out? You say till, till March, April. Do we run out of money? Yeah, I, I, exactly. And I think you will see, you know, the big come down, the big hangover at that point. And I think it's, it's kind of where we start looking at. So what is it that we really consider as essential and important? And I can tell you some of the things that I'm, I'm speaking to um, consumers and experts about is we still think about sustainability. You know, we're still trying to buy better. We're still trying to read the small print to see if this thing is, is you know, damaging the planet or is it local or seasonal or whatever. So I think that the the, the values that we've inherited or the values that we've embraced, and some would say, you know, when millennials brought these things to us, uh, we, we kind of started debating and exploring them. I think they still stay with us. And I think they're going to be tempered by the fact that we will have to ask hard questions about, well, what it is and how we will live over the next year. So just a couple of of, of loose predictions Um, with energy, with with ongoing strikes, et cetera, et cetera. More people will decide long term, particularly as we enter the summer months, it's okay to work from home again. So I do think the current shift to hybrid working is something here to stay with the majority of organizations. It's cheaper for the uh, teams working and it's cheaper for the employers. Mm. So I think that that's a kind of a huge shift. And that in itself has huge implications for our town centers, you know, for our the way we socialize, for how we use our cities, for how we think, I think, again, about um, community and sustainability and our kind of personal values as members or citizens. So I think there's there's a, a lot of, of gathering um blips that will coalesce towards the end of next year, where you will be dealing with a different consumer type. You'll be dealing with, with, with um, I think, a rump of people who will have more values that will lean towards the left in pushing an opposition, whereas they're currently leaning towards the right and a dominance of thinking that when I'm talking to people under 35 and 40, 
They find this whole thing quite strange and odd, you know, views about Europe, views about immigrants, views about um, kind of climate, views about localism. They're kind of beginning to question them. So I think all of these are gathering and beginning to show themselves in different ways. So more, so, more, so more progressive society is what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and the interesting politics of that, because what you're saying is, and, and we are, by the end of next year, we'll be moving into election phase potentially here in the UK, um, and, and the economics and, as you're saying, the social attitudes maybe, I suppose, making it more likely that, even than it is now, that there'll be a change of government. I think it sounds like you're saying, yeah, Rishi, don't change the wallpaper because you're not going to be looking at it for too long. I think that, look, it is, it's, I'm more focused on, I think, on the consumer because I get, you know, how people vote when, when it, it, you know, gets to election and they have to make hard decisions about their pay packets or about their community or, or the kind of their national sense of, of you know, where they want the country to be. But if I take that aside and look at what people are thinking and I take that into an age demographic, by and large, they want a fairer, more communal, more considerate, more libertarian, more outlooking and more integrated. So the, the I guess... The debates we're seeing about Europe, I would also put a long term prediction on, on hand that within five years, the European question will be back on our national agendas. Because when I again talk to people in the 20s and 30s who perhaps weren't aware of the implications of the vote or people, for example, yesterday I was talking to a group of people who, uh, you know, late teens, early 20s. They really didn't understand what the European project was about. But when you ask them questions, they thought, wouldn't it be a great idea that we were part of Europe? Wouldn't it be a great idea that we allowed free border movement? Wouldn't it be a great idea if we can go and work in France, Germany, Italy without all this hassle? So I said, wow, okay, that's how it used to be. I've got a so Mr. Farage on the line who wishes to uh, object to what you're saying. <laughs> no, I mean, what you're describing there sounds like fan- a fantastic idea. When can that happen? It's- well, I think it, it, it's, you know, the, the, the other issue is, is um, I, I was talking to someone recently and, and you know they were saying look you know if we did nothing or waited all of these objectives will be dead within 20 years mm. and you know that in itself does change the future because when you remove the resistance to change or the resistance to to you know what people want that suddenly accelerates things in a different way and I, and I feel that it's a bit like when you're at traffic lights and the lights are about to change and all of the cars are revving up and everybody's getting ready but it looks like nothing is moving and then suddenly the lights switch and everything yeah. starts pushing forward and a different and I think that's where we are at the moment you know there are so many signs that we're at a point of um, what I call phase transition, that everything is getting ready. So it's an economic shift. It's a a political, societal, social media shift. So all of these things have been debated and have been negotiated, and we've kind of had cancel culture. We've had pushback against it. So suddenly, I think people are getting ready for a change, and I think it will be shocking for those people who don't want change and don't want status quo. And, you know, when you chat to younger generations about, for example, you know, Scottish devolution, Welsh devolution, Northern Irish, they have no issue with it. In fact, in some ways, they can't understand what the debate is about. So you think it was kind of almost a 60s moment, I suppose, if you look back, a point where the old disappears almost overnight. I think it's a really good analogy because if you think about the 60s, you know, you had the gathering for it was the beginning of, uh, you know, social change, you know, the kind of youth quake. But also, if you think about the beginning of the ecology movement, you know, things like the whole Earth Earth catalogue, that great picture of Earth rising above the moon, the blue marble. 
you know, that was the beginning, I think, of an era where people saw change, saw the world as a shrinking place, saw the benefits of globalization, which is something I, I think is about to come back, but also saw optimism in a different way. And yet, if you look at the period, it was full of wars. It was full of dissent. It was full of prejudice, racism, misogyny. So I think it's it's not that suddenly people were enlightened. It is that light broke through the crustiness of what had gone before. But, but Martin, that was that a period of economic boom as well. And isn't the whole problem with what you're saying? Yes, but if the economics allows it and, and, and all the economic signals that we're seeing, and maybe you think differently for 2023, are not suggesting um, that, that we're going to feel better off uh, as a people. The, yeah, I think the in some ways, you know, the... the economics are, are are not hugely dissimilar because yes you you know you're seeing i think uh, america while it's having a boom period you know massive stress on, on inflation britain in recession germany while doing well would probably go into recession france will go into recession but if you look at previous recessions certainly in the uk it was the time when we saw an explosion in arts, when we saw explosion in innovation, when we saw explosion in, in, in um, new businesses coming through. Because when you're kind of down and against the ropes, you go, fuck, what else can I do except fight back, disrupt, innovate, mm. change? So in some ways, if I overlaid periods of, of um, economic stress, and political inactivity with periods of, of, of kind of scientific, social or cultural advancement, I find that they pretty much sat one on top of the other. So I think that the, my current feeling to that point about, you know, the kind of roaring 20s of, of technological change, I feel the thing coming through. You know, I look at what's happening in Britain. You know, regions are fighting for positioning. They're investing in innovation. They're investing in, in, in kind of progressive change mechanisms. There's a huge explosion of diversity, you know, for the first time, as we looked at the recent uh, census, you know, Christianity is no longer the dominant mm. religion in, in the country. You know, there are more week. religions, yeah. more ethnic groups, and diversity in itself brings with it differences, and difference brings with it debate, and debate brings with it change. So if I'm kind of seeing these things as negatives as the kind of farages would do everybody else would go this is a bloody positive this is why germany you know are putting money and allowing people in from other countries while they're encouraging people to apply for citizenship while they're asking people from abroad to come and join them it's not just because they need people there to kind of fuel the economic forces they need people there because it fuels the intellectual and cultural and innovative forces and i really think that you know when you hear people worried about immigration and all of those things, you are hearing the same people who would burn printing presses and <laughs> yeah. would wreck looms and would destroy, you know, cultural progress because change to them in any way is anathema because it brings with it the point of debate and it brings with it the point of personal challenge and, and, and kind of, you know, cultural uh, well uncertainty, which, of course, is what makes 
for a vibrant society. So I think the next year we'll see all of those things coming to the fore and it will be an exciting place for people to be. Is that, you know, is that because, is that because we'll year. be actually meeting people face to face more? Because I, mean, I, I feel like the last few years we've, we've, we've seen that views have become uh, more extreme uh, or more polarised because people have been online more because they've not been seeing people face to face. So they're, they're lost in the echo chamber of people who, who, you know, who they agree with. Whereas if we get out more, then you're going you're gonna to get a, a wider variety of opinions. And I wonder on that as well, uh, I mean, to me, the, the, what would be a, a perfect vision is more and more of us work from home, but then discover that we don't want to be at home on our own all the time. So, we, you know, so the, like the re, we work model where you go into your local town and perhaps you meet up with people from, from other businesses and share coffee and, you know, share ideas. Uh, you know, whether we find that that becomes a, the new way of, of, of working. And that means we are sort of like talking face to face rather than talking through social media. So some of that good stuff that you're talking about, uh, where we are challenged and we, you know, you come up with new ideas because you share thoughts with other people that you don't necessarily agree with, you know, becomes a positive outcome. It almost becomes like a new age of enlightenment. Well, it's, I think, it, you know, it's, it's all of those things. But I think, you know, essentially, if you think about the culture wars we've had, you know, the gender wars, the kind of sense of, you know, things being cancelled out. There is a pushback on that. And it's not just older people who are pushing back on it. Mm. It is younger people equally who are saying that actually this is not a good way. Because on one hand, if we're talking about, you know, collectivism, which is the kind of the big trend among under 30s, you know, we're talking about Web3, which is all about decentralization. And we're talking about the, you know, the role of community. Suddenly, cancelling and refusal do not fit into those landscapes because community is about consensus. It's about debate. It's about embracing not just diversity, but differences. So I think there's also that groundswell of, of how we will change the nature of our, our um, public discourses. I think the second bit is we're understanding the why of work. You know, for example, uh, in my business, we have this is a tiny team, 60 people. And we have, you know, moving forward, and that probably was beginning to happen before COVID, people come in two days a week. And why they're there is, well, we have discovered from our research that collaboration, ideas generation, cooperation and cultural learning are better done face to face. But that doesn't require you to be there for the whole week. Yeah. But what you do discover is when you're there, you hear more voices and more enthusiasms and more differences. So I think we are not just redefining work, which I think is a good thing, but we're redefining how we have conversation, which is a better thing. Well, so if you think about that, you know, like Telegram, Discord, uh, you know, even the changes that Facebook or Meta rather will will inevitably make, it will be about allowing diversity and difference to come through. Well, I, I hate Sometimes to rain on your parade, yeah. Martin, a bit and 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 Phil's, but I mean, my impression of the way that you know, you're talking about social media sites and the um, Web three and all kinds of things that are going on. That they don't. You're suggesting it will lead to diversity, tolerance, conversations. The opposite is what seems to be happening. This has been the whole problem with Twitter. The whole problem with a lot of that. That the conversations online are not particularly enlightened. But it sounds like you're saying we're reaching a breaking point on that, though. People have. I think, yeah, it's it's it's. Look, I think we've got. I think we've got to the point where we understand the dangers. Yeah. And I think we've got to the point where we understand better still the consequences of those dangers. And I think that, you know, if um, you look at how 
uh, I think it was in one of the recent re- lectures, you know, Nigerian writer talking about, you know, the right to freedom isn't just about the right to, it's about the right to speak out, but also more tellingly, we have to understand that sometimes those discordant notes are the things that remind us why we have certain views or democratic processes or our abilities to allow for things that really anger or annoy us. And she was saying that unless we allow for this, we do risk returning to a dark ages of, of kind of, you know, thought management of of challenging, you know, yesterday giving a talk in a university, I spent my time thinking about, are there words I can't say? You know, the way that you, you suddenly start self-censoring. And she said, this is the real problem of social media as it stands. Mm. But now that we know the danger, we know what we need to do to mitigate and move against it. Where previously we thought this thing was enabling, helping, making us feel better, more positive. I think now even the dullest and most stupid of of kind of social media users will understand that something different lurks beneath that may not be healthy for them. So that's a good place to be. I think that's a better place to be than the optimism that we, we, we kind of will when we first logged onto Facebook or when we first shot out our first, you know, uh, Twitter characters or whatever. I think we're now more aware. And with awareness, I think, comes a different sense of responsibility. And when I look at what's coming through on new social media platforms, it is allowing for those kind of conversations to happen. And I think they are happening because I think cancel culture in itself was a good thing because it reminded us of what we are cancelling out. And are we happy to do that? If we agree broadly in freedom of speech, are we happy that uncomfortable speech should be removed from the discourse? I think people are increasingly not. So if these are good things or slow things, but eventually uh, you will see a different kind of media coming through and I think, you know, with freedom, as you know, kind of working in broadcasting, there are certain responsibilities. And most of those social media platforms have refused it. Different kind of media. Can. We're already yeah. here. We're already here. Yeah. So uh, just a different tack. So uh, Barbara Vanga, who's a, a Bulgarian mystic who supposedly predicted <laughs> Chernobyl and the death of Princess Diana and the end of the Soviet Union. So good she's Lord. got a good track record. Yes. But unfortunately, good she's, track record indeed. Yeah. She's dead now, though. But she did leave a, a calendar. Didn't she didn't coming. In, no, she didn't. In the 1980s. But she Fortunately, left a calendar of predictions for yep. the years that would follow. So this year, or this coming year, I should say, uh, the Earth is going to change its orbit, uh, which is going to cause very high radiation levels. We're going to have the arrival of extraterrestrials, possibly on boats across the English Channel. Uh, so, I mean... Yeah, and, Martin, yeah, have you factored all uh, that in? Uh, yeah, or... I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that these things could happen. It would be a great diversion to the, the, the potential mundanity. And well, we'd stop worrying the, about the uh, <laughs> the war in Ukraine and inflation, wouldn't we, with the arrival yeah. of... But is there... Is there any, I mean, do you ever take a pot shot at something maybe not quite as extreme as that? If What could happen that we, we, yeah, that I, we're I not expecting? Yeah, I all the time because, uh, you know, when you're having to put together long forecasts, mm. these are things that you sort of, uh, you know, need to think about. So mm. I, I, I look at, um, for example, the, uh, you know, probably about a decade ago, we looked at, you know, super regions, super cities. We are looking at how Britain would more emulate a federated model than a a model of London being on top and everything else kind of radiating towards it. And I think those kind of predictions work over time because it's where the drift is taking you through. I think the, 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 
ones that are you know um more difficult so the one that i would predict is you know for example uh, european enlargement you know over the next decade europe will get bigger and bigger it mm. will take in probably all of those regions so my question is always if that's the case and if scotland evolves so scotland becomes an independent country which i think will happen uh wales potentially northern irish interesting but that puts england in a fairly interesting position it puts it in the middle of europe or you know a, a state locked in a european project and a european vision and therefore my question is what does that mean to england not what it means to britain but what does that mean to england and that's when i start looking at how we put together forecasts you know you basically build the scenario up this is going to happen that's going to happen and as a consequence what does england look like yeah you know or on the other hand which is the other way to look at it england is the first of the breakaway states britain rather and then gradually you look what happens if Europe disintegrates, which will be the superpowers that will appear out of the ashes. And what will the consequences be to the European um, so, kind of game or the vision? So, lo- so that's lots, kind of, of, uh, lots of questions. Martin, I am going to pin you down. I'm going to say, give me, give me two things you think will happen in 2023. In 2023, okay, I think um, we are going to see the appearance of quite a lot of genetic, genetically modified or synthetically modified products in our shops and stores, which the consumer will be happy to purchase. So I think there's a huge um, appeal among uh, 20-somethings to embrace GM or synthetic or, or clean and i think uh we are going to see the continued rise of of you know plant-based i think that again is one of those things that will sit like organic because it will become a bigger and larger option that a lot of people will opt for and the third thing i think we're going to see um a a big debate again about the relevance and role of the countryside and the city so town and country which have always sat in opposition to each other and i think 2023 2024 will be the point when we will have to break up this opposition and really look at what the countryside is there for and what the city is there to do so the notion of the countryside is like a elevated playground for the city people or for the farming community it's it's like a way to produce things without having to worry about the city intruding on it will be absolutely changed. So I think we're going to have to face much more difficult uh, conversations and debates about what it means to, you know, talk about sustainability and to talk about purpose and to talk about your sense of, of, of kind of values if you're not willing to understand that you can't have a city and country that sit in opposition, that you can't refuse wind farms because they look inelegant or they don't look kind of pleasant next door, that you can't, um, you know, argue back against changes, urban intrusion, like green bells are such things of the past, you know, both in terms of concept, in terms of debate, in terms of, of how they're forcing cities to push up rather than push out. Cities need to sit in countryside. The countryside needs to sit in the city. So I think all of those things will come together. So we're going to see in in this kind of the ashes of, of you know, cost of living, inflation, the, the, the kind of the darkness from March onwards, you know, because we've kind of spent everything. 
more interesting debates about how we want to live the next 20 years. Optimism is what I'm hearing here, uh, which is is refreshing. Do you want another bit of optimism? My my prediction for next year is that actually the economy won't be as bad as people think. I think inflation will die down, growth will pick up, and it won't be as bad as people think. Which rather backs up what Martin was saying there, in fact. I think it's it's, it's potential. And also I suspect that, you know, businesses which have sort of been quiet about the whole process will begin to take the lead I and mean, if you think about it, we did we did a survey recently we discovered that you know 80 percent of people we spoke to obviously never quite trust percentages but 80 percent believe that businesses have a more vital role to play in, in societal solutions and i think increasingly you will hear the voices of of, of kind of business leaders speaking out in opposition because if you looked at that talk that i think it was uh, Rishi and the CBI, you know, you think nobody in that room believed what he was saying. Nobody in that room believed that immigration was a bad thing. And Mm. nobody believed that the European experiment, as he described it, was something that should have been discounted in favour of a better deal for Britain. So I just think people have had enough of the, the kind of status quo looking to the past and refusing the inevitability of tomorrow. And I think that's really going to be another tension that uh, a lot of people will have to consider. So it's not going to be an easy ride. It's going to be a bumpy one. But boy, you know, when things become bumpy, you wake up. It's like when you're on a plane yeah. and suddenly you get turbulence. That's when you know you're alive. So I think they, think they are the words we should we should ring in the new year with. Uh, we've, <laughs> we've had enough. And yes. uh, so things are going to change next year. It sounds like for the better. So Martin, yep. uh, uh, thank you. I mean, you've, you've livened us up anyway. You've given us a better, a better outlook to next <laughs> well, year. So made us feel slightly happier. Martin, thanks so much for being with us. A pleasure. I mean, the other thing that could happen next mm, year, of course, yes. is that the internet closes down. Well, then, then that would change everything. It would. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'd just have to go to a, a speaker's corner yes, and, and shout, uh, loudly. Would shout loudly from there. But, Literally, yeah, I mean, yes. the question is, I mean, you know, it, uh, how vulnerable is the internet? You know, when ah, we've got world uh, forces, you know, we've got foreign powers indeed. that want to take us well, down, basically. Well, and are they going to be successful at that? And let me how take much of back. the world is connected to the internet and how much could go wrong? Let me take you back to the beginning of this year when the... The uh, Russians invaded Ukraine. And we say, well, this, this is going to be nothing compared to the cyber war they're going to launch on, mm. on everybody. Yep. Not just the Ukrainians, but everybody. It's all going to go down. How many of our votes have actually yes, been infiltrated be by the internet? And in fact, it was the dog that didn't bark, which was interesting. I mean, there's lots of theories as to why the Russians haven't been more effective in using uh, cyber war, which everyone assumed they had great capacity for, and whether it will be the, the big takedown. I mean, the UK is investing heavily in, in cyber defense. Most countries are. Yeah. But actually, are we chasing the wrong enemy? Well, uh, well, and there's two levels of it, aren't there? There's, there's the one side where, okay, we're, it, it, there's going to be an attack, like denial of service attacks, mm-hmm. where they're cl- going to close things down. There's the other more subtle approach where our opinions and attitudes yeah. are influenced by social media, and by our data bots. is harvested and used yeah. against us. So there's mm-hmm. lots of aspects to it, but we're going to take that on. We're going to have a look uh, in the, the beginning of 2023 as to whether cyber wars are the future, how risky is all this for for us how much protection do we actually have we're going to look at that right okay so happy new year we'll see you next <laughs> week in a new year uh, and it's going to be a good year apparently from yes, what we've heard today that's what we, we would like you to go away with that thought it'll certainly be a good year if you keep listening to the why curve we'll see you in 2023 the why curve